Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you something, people. There's always traffic in LA, but it was most obviously to me the other night. I was doing some background work on the Sony lot in Culver City. Culver City is about 21 miles from Burbank. So it's a late call. I go in at seven at night. I leave at two. I think, you know what? I'm going to make it home in no time. Jump on the uh, 10. I fly, jump on the 110, I fly. I hit the five, okay, which is like the biggest road in LA, one of the biggest roads, and they've cut it down to two lanes and then the one lane. It took me an hour to get home on a Friday night at two in the morning. That is how bad traffic is out here. It sucked because you're sitting there and you're stuck and you just want to get home and you're thinking, these people are idiots because these roads have been under construction forever. I swear to God, I saw a sign that said the road would be under construction, finished in 2014, okay? Last I looked, it's 2015. Anyway, that was my rant for today. We have a great show. I got to tell you, my guest, uh, I, man, I, worked, I did comedy with him years ago, and he doesn't remember this, but I remember we worked at the Cherry Hill Comedy Cabaret together, and that's my hometown, and he liked my act. I was, I was the uh, host, and he was the headliner, and he said, hey, you ever work for Gary Grant? And I go, no, I can't get through him. He goes, you call him. Tell him, you know, no, I'll call him. So I call Gary Grant and his wife, I think it's Pat answers. And she's like, so Ken Casper recommended you. I said, yes. Well, he'll have to call us. And this is a time when there was just landlines. I mean, it wasn't like a cell phone. You could text someone. So I called and Kent called and the guy booked me as a feature and I got three weekends out of that. So I want to thank you. I guess it's Ken Casper. How are you doing, Ken? Oh, I'm doing great, Steve. No, no problem. Yeah, back then, Gary and Pat, uh, they had a lot of rooms and uh, they were very big on referrals. And uh, I remember liking your act. And by the way, Cherry Hill was one of my favorite rooms. It was such a small room. It was intimate. Uh, they put us in a nice hotel. Right there, yeah. Well, it was the Hyatt. Well, what's funny is about that room is when I was going back to see my girlfriend, I was doing gigs. Well, it went from being a Scarpati room to a Rascals to a place called Sarcasm Comedy Club. And they switched because in the beginning, it was in that very small front area. Now it was in a banquet room, but I'm thinking... Mm. It's unbelievable how, you know, comedy has been there, but it's changed and the hotel's changed like three times. It was a Hyatt and a Clariat, and it's just crazy. You know what I remember about that hotel? Like about a mile away, heading to the diner, there was these weird circles that you used to have to drive through. I don't know, they're called roundabouts. Circle, yeah. That was the one you went to. The diner was on the uh, racetrack circle and was right then because it was the race that was yeah. built, but then they rebuilt it and it burnt down and all this crap. Yeah, I actually miss those days. You know, you'd get off a show, you'd finish the show, and like, People would say to you, hey, hey, you want to you come out and eat with us? You want to come out and eat with us? In the beginning, I used to always say yes, but they used to kind of bite me in the butt because they would expect you to continue to perform, and they would expect you to continue to be funny, and you were kind of just tired. So I kind of just stopped that and just started going out with other comedians who, we, who knew that we were just off. We just wanted to talk. People wanted you, uh, if they invited you, to continue the show. And right. it became a little bit like, you know, enough's enough, uh, you know. Well, what I liked about your act, your act was filthy, but it was funny. It, it wasn't it wasn't shock filthy. It was dirty, but also because if you don't know people, he's uh, six foot five. He does. He said we were talking. I'm like, a, I'm a mini me. I'm a mini me of uh, Ken Casper. Well, Peter, I got to tell you, by, uh, Steve, by today's standards, my act is not filthy. No, but back then, but it was because it was you and a guy in Philly named David E. Hardy was doing that. Right, right. And But you guys were funny because, first of all, people, especially Cherry Hills, the town I grew up in, and. You're a guy, and you walked up with a wig, and then you took it off, so the crowd's like, oh, and then they like you because, right, you're, you have the Jewish voice. You're Jewish. Cherry Hill, where I grew up, is 85% Jewish, so you're accepted, and they're like, this, we love this crap, and I knew you used to kill. Well, you know you know how the booker, Andy Scott Patty, who was a, one of my main bookers and a really nice man, he used to bill me as the adult comedy of, and, uh, and looking back, you know, when I watch comedy now, I mean, I was pretty tame. I mean, I spoke about, you know, sex, but I, you know, I, I really wasn't big with the four-letter words. And you didn't, you didn't drop F-bombs. You talked about sex, which, yeah, which yeah. that was fine because, you know, you're at a comedy club. Yeah, yeah, but by today's standards, I'm telling you, know, looking back, you know, I have very little regrets in my life. But in looking back in my career, I mean, I, I mean, I co-headlined with Foxworthy. I co-headlined with Romano. I co-headlined uh, Dave Chappelle was my opening act. Uh, Martin Lawrence middled for me. Chris Rock middled for me. I mean, I, I, mean I, I was around with some big people. And the only, I won't even call it regret. The only thing looking back was, you know how Schimmel went for it? You know, he, he was pretty filthy Schimmel. Yeah, and he was, you know, he was very funny. I, I just, looking back, I was bordering on the Schimmel-like comedy. But I stopped short, and I think the reason why I didn't, quote, pop or become famous was I just fell short of a hook. You know what I mean? I used to destroy laughter-wise, but I learned very early that you could be the funniest guy in a room and knock him dead, 
But if you don't have that hook. Yeah, well, that was like there was a guy in Philly named Grover Silcox. I remember Grover. One of the funniest people. But he always said to me, Steve, if I only had a closing. His opening was brilliant, but same thing. A guy who should have popped, but once again, you miss it by that little thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm a headline head. I must have headlined with Foxworthy a dozen times. Foxworthy uh, is worth about a, a half a billion dollars. He's the number one CD comedian of all time. And I'm going head to head with him back then. So I, I look back and I go, it wasn't the talent or Bill make you laugh. I just don't think I found that hook. And you know what was different then? And I know you can attest to this because you headlined. And now, and I, I've done shows with features, they, they all have merch but, and they make money. But no one back there had merch. Like if you had a CD or if you had an album or like, not a CD, a cassette or, or a T-shirts, no one did that back then. But people would buy because they liked your act. You could have sold fake toupees and people would have bought that shit for like 10 or 15 bucks a pop. Well, later on, I started doing that. I started doing the uh, the, the shoemaker approach. I started selling everything. Like big, da- <laughs> big Daddy Graham used to do that. Yeah, oh, yeah, you he know, did albums before anybody. You want to know something Big Daddy Graham? I did the Joe Franklin show with Big Daddy Graham. That's funny. And I'm sure everybody can tell you this. Um, he passed away, but... Joe actually uh, picked us up in New York City. Uh, he took us to his office, and he drove us uh, to his studio. And, and I'll tell you my first joke I did with Joe. What a nice man. He had to be like two foot six. His yeah. office was, talk about being a hoarder. i never forget, it was a time of Bernie Getz, you know, the whole thing yeah. with the subway. And i never forget this line. He said to me, Joe said to me, so uh, what do you think of this? You used to be an XDA. Uh, you know, what do you think about this Bernie Getz thing? So I'll never forget, I said to Bern, I said to Joe, I said, you know, I actually knew Bernie, Joe, and I said to Bernie, you got a temper, take the bus. Right. <laughs> to this day, I remember that joke. I don't think he laughed. There's nobody in the studio. That but, must be hard when there's like, I mean, it's like, that must be hard when there's no one in the studio and you know it's a gem. Well, Big Daddy, Big Daddy was actually, I remember him being, a, uh, we both laughed at each other's material, but that was one of the first TV shows I did. But I thought to myself, I don't know if it's a big time if the host is picking you up. Right. That's, yeah. <laughs> but I tell you, but I tell you, he uh, he was one of the nicest men in the world. Uh, looking back, uh, it was a it was a fun show. I mean, it was a really really fun show. Now, as a kid, you were a big sports fan. You yeah, I was an lot, athlete. I was a jock. Because I was six feet four at my bar mitzvah. Okay. Now, now, where did you play hoops or did you play? Well, baseball? you know, it's funny. I, I was a really great baseball player. I had a great arm. I used to play with Greg Cosell, who is uh, Howard's uh, uh, nephew, and. Uh, I was a great, great, great ball baseball player, but then I shot up like nine, ten inches. So all of a sudden, there was a massive amount of pressure to play basketball, and I was more of a natural baseball player than a basketball player. But because I shot up from sixth grade to seventh grade, I was six foot four in seventh grade. Wow! They recruited me to the basketball team, so I played seventh grade through twelfth basketball. I got a basketball scholarship, but I never had the natural ability as a basketball player. And had I followed my instincts, I maybe could have been a minor league baseball player. But because of the pressure of being big and tall and, and being athletic, I followed the basketball path. But I never was a natural. In fact, Ernie Grunfeld, who played for the Knicks. Ernie and Bernie show. Yeah, Ernie and uh, King. Uh, I played against Ernie, and he was an All-American. And I, here's how I knew I wasn't even close to being in the league of being a great basketball player. Ernie scored, I believe, 56 points off me and I think 39 rebounds. <laughs> and I don't even remember him scoring. He was so powerful. So I knew back then that I wasn't going to be anything close to being a professional basketball player. But back then I was tall, six foot four center. They looked at me like I was Kareem. Yeah, back then. Now, now, at what point did you get the comedy? Were you a, like you were a big comedy fan as a kid, or were you more sports gamer? I mean, because there's a there's a path that ends us to comedy. Like me, I used to remember listening to Carlin albums, and my brother had a Cheech and Chong wedding album. I still remember that, like listening to that, and just dying, and Doctor Demento. And so I wanted, I I liked it, but then I didn't know really where to go. And you are well, you lived in New York, so there was the clubs. But when did you start knowing you wanted to do well, comedy? Well, I, I only wanted to be three things growing up, honestly. I wanted to be a baseball player, I wanted to be a comedian, and I wanted to be a lawyer. Those are the only three things I ever thought about. And as a little kid, seven, eight years old, I used to listen to Al Jolson albums. I was just obsessed with Al Jolson, the Al Jolson story. For years, I thought that Larry Parks was really Al, Al Jolson. I was absolutely obsessed with Al Jolson. And I got my hands on an early Jackie Mason album when I was a kid. He's one of his first albums. And I just was blown away by he used to be a rabbi. And I used to listen to Mason, Mason, Mason. And as it turns out, 30 years ago, 30 years after, I met Mason. And he asked me to open for him uh, when I used to work the streets of New York City. I'll get to that. 
and I said to him, I, I can't believe a blah blah bum and I, it was I was obsessed with Mason and I used to love uh uh how's your mother? How's your oh, yeah. father? What's his name? Uh, no, but it was Camp Granada. I, I, Camp I, Granada. I, uh, I know. Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, the big heavy guy, and he died. So, uh, you know, then as I, uh, when I was in college, I said to myself, well, I want to be a lawyer, but I don't know. I, I started doing comedy with John Manfred. Uh, his name is John Manfalati. Oh, yeah, John. Hey, John. Well, we started doing comedy together at clubs. Because he was a flight attendant. He was on the show ages ago. Oh, yeah, and I, I got to know him at Stony Brook. And we started doing stand-up together in Stony Brook. And we started working the – he was funny. Oh, he was funny. That big mustache, small guy. And we started doing all the local shows at uh, Stony Brook. And, you know, we were pretty bad, but we were getting some laughs. And I said to John, boy, wouldn't it be fun to do this as a living? You know what I mean? And he, I think he was getting fed up with the whole uh, flight attendant yeah, stuff. Yeah, he said he did it. He just hated it. Yeah, and I, and I said to myself, you know, what's the rush to law school? So uh, I never forget, I got my first gig in Stony Brook, and I get to the club, it was like 20 bucks, and it said, appearing tonight, comedian Ken Casper. And I was blown away by the word comedian in front of my name, because up until then, comedian was Jack Benny, comedian was Bob Hope, comedian was Don Rickles. And having my name after the word comedian, even though it was 20 bucks, was like euphoric for me, like, wow. I have the word comedian in front of my name. And that, that was the moment where it hit. I went, maybe I can just let law school go for a while. So you decided, okay, I'm going to buy it. And that's when you started performing on the streets, right? No, no. I, I moved into I moved into the city, okay. uh, West 21st Street. 30, uh, found out the apartment now is $3 million. I could have bought it for 30000 <laughs> What I had, I had two, uh, Nick, two nickels back then. And back then, there was literally every single night you were able to go to three, four. Uh, there was Abby Stein, Scott Blakeman. Okay. Myself, uh, Claudia Sherman, uh, we all used to run around and be each other's audience, and we'd go to like four rooms a night. Basically, we were each other's audience as well as each other's performers, and we got to do three, four sets a night. Uh, then in between that, we would audition for Catch a Rising Star, the improv uh, uh, comics, comic strip, but the problem with those rooms were they were very thick with politics. Back then, Seinfeld was the number one person. Carol Leifer was right up there. Larry, uh, Larry Miller was right up there. Uh, Glenn Hirsch, Piscopo. So it was impossible as a new comedian to get any stage time. So most of us passed auditions there, but we were downgraded to literally getting there 8 o'clock at night and waiting until 2 o'clock in the morning. And if you were lucky, and that's lucky, there was one person in the audience right. or two. And I thought to myself... How am I ever going to develop with one person in the audience? So I had, a, I had a, a good friend of mine named Keith Thomas, and we went out together as a team. And we said, let's hit the streets. We used to watch Charlie Barnett, the fabulous street yeah, comedian. It was, yeah, he was like, yeah, I mean, he was amazing. I mean, that's like, and you, you know, he was, I remember him on Miami Vice. And well, stuff he was like supposed that. to be the new Eddie Murphy, but he had a drug problem. So I used to watch him on the streets, and he was in Washington Square Park with no microphone. You can even go on YouTube and see him. And he had thousands of people around him in Washington Square Park. He was a genius. He was prior-ish. It was unbelievable. Then I watched Rick Avilas, who used to jump on fire hydrants all over the city. And then there was another uh, great white comedian named Stan Rifkin in Washington Square Park. And I said to my buddy, I said, we're never going to be these guys. But I think there's a niche for white Jewish comedians outside. So we tried Central Park first around the pond. And we, you know, we got some half decent audiences where people were flying by on rollerblades that, that had no money. We said, no, I don't think this is it during the day. Then we went to the Bleecker movie theater on Bleecker Street. Cops kept pushing us away. But then we found a, a home on the Upper West Side on Columbus Avenue. It was just popping back then on Columbus Avenue, about 79th Street, 80th Street. And that was the sweet spot. Uh, people would stroll and and literally i spent almost four summers five nights a week with a hat doing six seven sets a night what kind of material are you doing i mean because you're on the street so it's got to be if you don't gather the crowd i mean how would you hook them i you know i hooked them in the beginning there was this young black kid really nice kid i used to say to him do me a favor i'll pay you five bucks just stand here just stand here and watch me and one gets two two gets three three gets four four gets eight eight gets and then I used to have him pass the hat for me so that you never would let you, you never would want the crowd to completely disperse because you wanted the remaining people to there. Right. So I got it down and I was able to make back then 
80, 100, 150 bucks a night. In, I mean, it was in change. And I was making five, six hundred dollars a week back in the late 70s doing street comedy. And I'd occasionally pop into the comic strip improv. You know, maybe I'd get on one, two in the morning. But I'd say to my buddy Keith, you know, we're developing out here in one summer what it would take us four years at the improv. But the catch 22 is we didn't get the political connections right. by hanging out. We didn't get the. Uh, but there was one club that was really great, Pips. Remember Marty I remember and Seth? Pips in uh, Staten Island. You remember, you know, Seth passed away. I don't know. I, I only played there once or twice. Yeah. Well, listen to the lineup. Scott Blakeman was always there and me. And the young kids that used to come up and get stage time were uh, Adam Sandler. And there used to be a comedian that would come out in the light. And he would come out as a mad scientist with buck teeth and glasses. Then the lights would go off and it would be Dice Clay. Okay. Dice started out as the mad scientist. That's funny. Because he always liked that Jerry Lewis stuff. He always That was always his thing. He That's always, how he started. Yeah. That's how he started. Then later on, uh, when I was a regular at the improv and he was at the height of his fame, he'd come in and he was pretty nasty to the comics. It was like, get off stage, get off, get off. I mean, he was just filled with himself. Once he walked in the room, like, the world should stop for him back then. Now he's a little more humble now. Yeah, I mean, he's gone through a lot. So it's, you know, because yeah. I, I opened for him in Philly. Oh, you did? Well, it was right, it was right when he was, he had just done... The Rodney special. So, right, right. So he right. was about to blow up. And this was his last show playing at the Comedy Factory outlet. And then he went to play the TLA, Theater of Living Arts, on South Street. And I did a character back then called Steve the Stud. And the owner, Clay Heary, thought I would be a good contrast. So I opened for him. And it was fun, but I was nervous as shit because it was my first, you know, big gig. And they, I brought him on for an encore because the sound man gave me miscommunications. And he's like, I don't do encores. And he just went up. But... but he, he was all right to me. His girl, his wife at the time, is very sweet. Right. But he's like, look, I get a good cheesesteak. I said, I said, I'd go down, <laughs> go down to South Street. So, so you're you're playing the clubs. You're playing now. You get past the street. Now, when do you decide to go to law school? Because this comes in at one point. Well, well, before I get to that, I just want to mention one other thing. I was working Garvin's Comedy Club. Remember Garvin's yeah. in Washington? B.J. Nelson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the owner said to me, "There's a young kid here. He, he uh, would, would you mind? He gets up. He's a really local kid, and he's good." I said, "No. I always feel like." Good karma. You know, let people get up there. Guy gets up there, he destroys. Like, holy mackerel. He's 16 years old. Dave Chappelle. Yeah, I worked Garvin's. I was the feature. He was a, he was the opener. Okay. Amazing, right? Friday night blows me off the stage. Like, well, he, he's and 16. I'm, yeah, and I'm sitting there going, oh, my God. You know, and you get that because you have some more shows. So Saturday, I go back early show, and he does good, but I, I smell. I'm the nicest kid. Yeah, I'm the very nice kid. And I, I have a great set. So now I'm cocky. Not cocky, we have that thing. Late show, blows me off the stage again. I, I was like. Same thing. I'm like, I can't believe this kid is 16. I know. I ran into him like 15 years ago. I didn't get his cell number. And uh, Martin Lawrence, uh, middle, he opened for uh, middle act for me in Chuckles, Martin Lawrence. And uh, Chris Rock was my middle act in the Marinette, like 88. Wow. You know, I mean, uh, and these are all nice kids, nice kids. Oh, oh, and a question about law school. Yeah, because you, you were doing comedy on the street. And then, I mean, what point did you go? What time, when did you become a lawyer? Well, you know, the street was amazing. I mean, I, I, Joe Papp, uh put a little note in my bag saying, call me. Joe Papp was the king of Broadway. Three weeks later, I was auditioning for Pirates of Penzance. Kevin Klein was leaving. Now, I don't sing. I don't dance. I hired a singing coach. I hired a dance coach. That's like Babe Ruth deciding to audition to be a ballerina. So I went in to sing Pirates of Penzance. It was a disaster. My pants split. I couldn't keep up with the music. <laughs> but he was dying of laughter because I was so wrong. Kevin Klein's a song and dance man. Uh, yeah, it's... It was ridiculous. But I got to have a relationship with Joe Papp. And we almost, I thought I would be the new pup, the, the guy at the public theater, the comedy wing. who was putting together a channel. It didn't happen. Kind of broke my heart. Um, uh, another big thing up the street was uh, De Niro. I ran into De Niro on 57th Street. Uh, one afternoon, because I had gotten a scammed at an ATM machine. And I, for some dopey reason, I went back thinking I'd find a person. And as I'm crossing the street on 57th and Broadway, he's approaching me. This is 1982 in March. And as he's approaching me, I'm going, holy crap, it's Daniel. He, he stops me and he says to me, I, I saw you on the corner there. You'd be, I'd be a great for your album cover. Long story short, I thought I was dreaming. We spoke a half an hour about comedy. He told me he used to come to watch me when he was getting ready for King of Comedy. We talked about the recent death of Belushi. Gave him my number. I called up my girlfriend at the time. I told him, you're not going to believe this. I just spoke to uh, Robert De Niro for an hour, half hour, and he told me how great he was. She said, Kent, are you on your way to your therapist? I think you should get there. 
people were like treating me like I told them I had talked to Jesus. They didn't right. believe me, like I was a, a delusional. So, but long story short, I got, you know, I got pretty disappointed with some close calls, and I said, you know what? My father was a truck driver his whole life, and he, my father looked like a combination of Joe DiMaggio and Gary Cooper, very handsome guy. But his father walked out of him when he was a kid. He had to raise four daughter, four uh, sisters and his mother, so he became a, a truck driver. So his whole life. He always wished he was a lawyer. So whenever we'd go to like family events, there was one guy he hated that was a lawyer. And he was, his name was Herb, and he was a fat little schlubby guy with always used to sweat. And at the end of the night driving home, my father would say, that son of a bitch became a lawyer. That piece of crap, that son of a bitch became a lawyer. How did I not become? So I, I just got ingrained that somehow or another I should become a lawyer. So... I, I, I put away the baseball dreams and I narrowed it down to comedian and law. And I said, all right. So I, I did the uh, New York City circuit for four years where I, I started doing, you know, the 50, 75 gigs with Phil Selman. Oh, God, uh, yeah. And, and Dennis. Dennis and Phil. And, Dennis, and I, I, yeah, I remember. The tomato circuit where they okay. throw tomatoes at you. Be like, hey, like, they, they had like, and then there was uh, Jerry Stanley. Oh, Jerry Stanley. And White House Junction. Uh, I remember. You ever work with Rich Voss? Yeah, he'd come out and just I'll kick you right in the you know I'll kick you right in the c word. Oh, yeah. He would just or Mark Wild. Hey, I'll kick you right in the c word. Well, yeah, well, I, I mean yeah, I mean, but it was an amazing four years, and you know I was thrilled to make, but it was great. I was making more money in the street than I was in these gigs. But you know, you get into the car, they pick you up at the improv, you head to Jersey, you know, and uh, you head out to the. Oh, one of my first early gigs was with Bobby Collins. At the White House, the guy who used to be White House, da- White House Junction, David Fra- uh, the guy who used to imitate Richard Dixon. I don't know. Richard I, Dixon used to be the Nixon look like, and okay. it was me and Bobby Collins. Well, by the way, Bobby Collins is a great guy. When I met him, we would, when I met him, he was ten years older than me. But according to Facebook, we're now the same age. That always happens. <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. I just saw someone. I who was it? An actor, and it said, I think it was a guest coming on my show, and it said, and one thing. 51, and then another thing, 57, and I'm like, yeah, I don't even know. No, even but trust Bobby was 10 years older than me, but for somehow or another, uh, yeah, for the genius of this, he's the same, same age as me. I used to go to a comedy workshop at the Improv in 1978. Listen to who was there. These two little, short little Jewish guys who used to be comedians in the 60s used to run it. In the comedy workshop at 6 o'clock at the Improv was me, Bobby Collins, Yakov Smirnoff, and Bob Rob Bartlett. Okay. And we used to get up for two hours before the improv opened and do us. Bartlett was a janitor, so he used to come with his janitor uniform. Smirnoff was a bartender. I'm good, I'm good friends with Yakov. Yeah, oh, yeah. He, he, back was, then. he was a bartender back then because that's how he got his name because he didn't, he, he didn't know I what didn't to do. I didn't know that. And the vodka, he was, everyone would ask for Smirnoff, then he, he didn't. So he yeah, did. so we did a uh, so Rwanda. Did, yeah. That's his name, but that's so funny. That, that's yeah, a lot of town. Yeah. That's some talented people. Though. Oh, yeah, yeah. So after four years of comedy, I was like 28. I went, you know, if I don't go to law school now, I'm never going to go. I just felt like I had to do it in my 20s. But how did you pick an all-black law school? Well, I took my LSATs, and uh, you know, I was always a, a, a like a B student. I mean, I got I got a I mean, I got a I got a JD degree, I got a master's degree, I got a college degree, but I was always like a B student. But I was a terrible test, a terrible standardized test taker. And I, the, from LSATs to PSATs to I never took standardized tests well. So when I took my LSATs, I didn't do well. And back then, that was a measuring stick. So I got into a few law schools. I got into Howard. But I almost went to Howard because it sounded like Harvard. Right. And I figured out a party, I would say, yeah, I went to Howard. Oh, you went to Harvard? Yeah, I went to Howard. I figured out that would be good. All black law school. I got into John Marshall, which was the night program in Chicago, 40 below zero. And then I got into uh, I got into uh, oh, Whittier, the night program out here. I couldn't afford it when Nixon okay. went. Okay, all right. And then, I, then I saw Texas Southern University. I liked the way it sounded. Thurgood Marshall Law School. And then it's oh, then I got into uh, I, I got into Pepperdine on a thing, because on my essay I, I started my essay by writing, well as a Catholic, and my girlfriend said, but you're Jewish. <laughs> I said, well I'm going to be a lawyer. I might as well start off lying. I said, she goes, you can't go to a Jesuit university and start off as a Catholic. <laughs> so it was almost like the movie, you know, Soul Man. We right. So I didn't go to Pepperdine. So I got, uh, I, I said to myself, Houston, Texas, it's warm. Uh, it has some comedy clubs there, and I got the idea that maybe I can become a resident there, you know, and and and, and go for cheap. So I went there, loaded up the car with my ex, and then I realized, I, I don't think I realized back then, but I realized pretty fast. It was 98% black, 1% Hispanic, 
and two Jews. <laughs> and, I th- and I thought to myself, I think I qualify for my minority scholarship. I thought to myself, I th- I'm a minority here. And I had no problem with uh, hanging out with blacks. I was a ball player. To me, it was completely cool, you know. And then I went down to the thing, and I, I got a minority scholarship. And one of my black friends said to me, Kent, you're a smart <laughs> Jewish son of a bitch. You're the only guy I know that would get a, a, a minority scholarship at a black law school. Perfect, though. Yeah, then I spent the whole three years. You know, Houston's Texas, like, you know, Yankee go home, Yankee go home. And, and it's I, humid. I, oh, it's hot. I say Yankee go home. I said, what, do I look like a baseball player? Right. I mean, you know, I, I, I put two and two together. Then I was a security guard in law school for Wackenhut Corporation. I got fired 15 times. I got fired for uh, uh, sleeping. I got fired for, uh, I worked at the Whitehall Hotel, and I, I, I had a girl over there, and I cooked dinner in the room, and there was a fire downstairs. I got uh, fired for uh, Masturbating. What? Okay. Now, what? What would? I'm sorry. I'm okay. Here's the thing. <laughs> now, there's some things. It's called okay, Wacken Hut. Yeah, I know, but I'm thinking it's like okay. That's like the least place. Plus, because you're probably wearing that polyester suit. Uh, so, so it's not something that you're gonna just pull it out and whack. Well, here's here's what happened. Jeez. It was a, it was a holiday night in the middle of Houston, Texas, at a pipe plant. I was thinking I was working the 12 to 8 shift. Here I am in a in a in a in a in a shack alone. From 12 to 8, I was married at the time, so I was, of course I was having no sex. So I had a magazine. I was tw- it was 12 to 8 at night. There's not a soul around. So I decided to pleasure myself. Well, little did I realize at 4 o'clock in the morning, the supervisor walked in. And he gave me a look. I'll never forget the look. And he said, we'll discuss this at the next meeting. It never was discussed. I was removed from that post. And then years later, I realized I was whacking off in a hut. I was, true, I was true to the name. True employee. So I actually thought about actually calling up that company just saying, hi, my name is so-and-so. Uh, we'd like a reference on Mr. Casper. I think it was like, oh, another one was I brought my dog once uh, to a CEO's office. So I was supposed to sit in the office and just watch the office. I didn't realize that my, my dog had defecated underneath the CEO's desk. So the supervisor <laughs> called me the next morning and said, Kent, what the heck happened? CEO came in and he found Duty underneath his thing. Did you take a crap under the table? I said, I'm sorry, sir. That wasn't me and my dog. So story after story, and uh, I may have qualified as the worst security guard uh, in the history of Wackenhut Corporation. Now, now, after you graduated law school, what did you went you went practice went to you failed the bar a few times. Well, well, I inter- I interned at the Houston DA's office. Okay, and now, this, were you, were you going to think of staying in Houston? Or well, you I thought you were about it. Go back? Uh, there was this intern there, uh, like a cowboy intern, that really liked me. And he took me under his wing. So the first year in law school, I'm third chairing capital murder cases. Now, in Texas, they murder you for chewing gum. So this guy loved me. And he had me sitting at the table with him. Here I am, first year in law school, and I'm watching death penalty cases. He just loved me. I made him laugh. And I thought to myself, I want to be a DA. This is fun. He Murder cases and capital murder. So I interned there for two years, thinking, oh, maybe I'll get a job here. You know, putting comedy on the side. So... I applied there. Then I applied, believe it or not, uh, to an office in Dallas, outside Dallas. And I was told that the name of the DA is Jerry Lewis. Don't tell a comedian yeah. that the DA's <laughs> name is. And he goes, he's very sensitive about his name. Of course he is, man. It's like, you know, every yeah. time he goes in the court, people go, lady. <laughs> right. So my first thought was, I'm going to walk in and go, hi, I'm Kent. Ladies. <laughs> so I knew. <laughs> Needless to say, I didn't get the job in Dallas. Houston, didn't, they didn't give me the job. I think it had to do with being uh, three strikes, you're out. You're from New York, you're Jewish, and I don't know what the third strike was. So they sent me home. No. But I said to myself, here I am. I graduated one of the worst law schools in the country. I'm at the bottom of my class because I was in a bad, bad, uh, bad marriage. But I'm going to get a job in the DA's office. Everyone said to me, you're nuts. You're going to be up against Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, NYU. Are you nuts? I said, no, I'm coming at it as a comedian. So I sent these DA offices my stand-up comedy tape. I sent them my stand-up comedy disc. I was like approaching it like I was auditioning for a movie. And I said, they're going to think I'm nuts, but I'm going to get attention. So I started getting interviews. Brooklyn DA, Queens DA, Nassau DA. And I went. I, I used to fly back on People Express, like 60 bucks, and you pay right. them on the plane. And slowly but surely... 
I, I, you know, I went through two interviews in Queens, they knocked me off. Three interviews in Nassau County knocked me off. Four interviews in Suffolk knocked me off. Five interviews in Brooklyn knocked me off. Came down to the last one, the Bronx, right by Yankee Stadium. And like I told you uh, on the uh, text, fifth interview, they said to me, what makes you think you could be a good DA? And I said, well, sir, uh, six people. I said, well, I've spent four or five years as a stand-up comedian. Laughter is the ultimate act of persuasion. As a DA, I think my job would be to persuade a jury. And I knew right then I was looking good. Right. And I knew that was going to nullify four years of law school, three years of college, masters. Then the next question was, sometimes in life there's one question that can define your future. The guy said to me, do you think you're funny? If I said no, I was gone. If I said yes, I would have to prove it. So I said, yes, I am, sir, on two levels. When I'm paid to be funny, I can be funny. And I think naturally I'm a funny guy. He goes, you got five minutes. So I had 300 seconds to determine my, my fate. And the good part about it was I was doing street comedy at night and I was working at clubs, so I was in shape. I jumped up on a conference table, threw off my jacket, had my suspenders on, did 300 seconds of stand-up comedy in the middle of a conference table in the DA's office. Not exactly perfect right. two-drink minimum, low lights and a microphone, but I had done the streets for years. So I didn't, any environment. You had no fear. Well, yes, yeah, the streets give you, I used, to, I used to chase buses. People would throw uh, water out the window. Homeless people would try to knife me. So to me, a conference table in the DA's office was beautiful. Got up there, made them laugh. They tried not to laugh. I made them laugh. Three weeks later, we'd like to welcome you to the Bronx DA. I found out they took 44 people out of like 6,000 applicants from Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, Fordham, Stanford, and I, Texas Southern University at the bottom of my class. Why? Because I got up on that table and made them laugh. The power of laughter. Yeah. So how long were you, were you a lawyer for? Well, I was there about nine, ten months. And then the DA, uh, the late Mario Marola, called me in his office, and he said, Kent, uh, was that you on television last night? Channel 5 did a show, uh, did a news clip on me called uh, Kent Casper, DA by day, comedian at night. <laughs> and they followed me around, and I kind of did it on the sly. He goes, are you still doing professional comedy? I said, yes, Mr. DA, I am. He goes, Kent, you can't be earning a living doing anything else. You can't be a waiter. You can't be a doctor. You can't be a comedian. You have to make up a mind. And he goes, I'll give you a month. And then I just thought about it, and I said, I had found out during that month that Paul Simon went to law school. And I thought to myself, how much less beautiful the world would be if Paul Simon was a lawyer? Right. I found out that Bob Newhart went to law school. I thought to myself, how much less funny would the world have been if he was a lawyer? And I said to myself, I have to follow, you know, my, my Dahmer. And I said to myself, as crazy as this decision is, because I stayed on the path of DA, I could be a defense attorney, I could be a judge, maybe something. I would always look at comedians and television and movies with a, with a hole in my gut. And I said, I'm going to move on. And then I went back on the comedy circuit. My relatives thought I was an absolute nut. How could you leave the DA's office? You had a career. You could have been a judge. But... Looking back, I have no regret on that decision. Now, what made you decide to move to L.A.? Because you were you were working the circuit, you're headlining, you know, you're making a good living. I mean, it's true that sometimes the road can be yeah. a little not the best lifestyle. But you know, I mean, I mean, people say to me it had to be really hard, and I say to them, you know, once once you get the the bookers on your side, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm talking to a guy that did this. You know, you headline, you have a nice dinner before, you're in a nice hotel room. And that expression that Billy Billy Crystal from the movie uh, Mr. Saturday Night, he goes, when you're on set, you when you're when you're on stage, you're prancing around, back and forth, back and forth. And when you're finished, every guy wants to be like you, and every girl wants to f you. And you don't know small towns, you know. Oh, yeah. When you get off the stage, there's something called a zone of power. You got about a half hour to hang out in the zone, and girls want to be with you. Scheidner always talks about Scheidner always tells the these zone. young comics he's like why are you going to a bar he no. goes when you go to a bar you've lost you have, all your, right. you've lost it all. he goes when you're in the club he goes when you're in the club the girls are like oh yeah oh yeah he goes as soon as you go to the bar you're just a regular show I, I used to tell my buddy Mike Marino and Paul Lyons stay in that zone because you know, when you leave you're a schlub do you know what Paul Lyons first uh, headshot said what did it say? Paul Tiger Lyons. Uh, I remember I, I worked with I him. I love Paul, one of my I nicest seen men him forever, in the world. but I worked with but him. But I used to say to him, stay in the zone. Yeah. So I would stay in the zone. I would say, what a job. 
I have a microphone. They're paying me cash. I just had a free, a couple of free meals. I'm in a luxury hotel, and I got girls and waitresses that usually Bob Golub got first. <laughs> I think Bob Golub used to. He's a very happily married man right now. Oh, I know. Yeah, he's, I, he was on the show. A while. Yeah, but I used to go to gigs and going. Don't pick up that waitress. Uh, Bob was with her last week. I said, all right. <laughs> I said, all right, I'll be with her this week. Well, I got to sign in. Right. And, and people say, was well, it a hard job? I said, no, digging ditches is a hard job. Standing up with a microphone, getting paid, and, and getting some action afterwards is it is a gift from God. You know, you did it. When you're oh, yeah. on stage laughing. Oh, it was I mean, fun. It was great. But then I just got tired of it. Yeah. It just because I, I lost all. It wasn't. But you were a good actor. You could have continued for a lot more. Yeah, I, I could have. I, I mean, I, I was, you know, I would when I went back, I would feature because I, when I go up and I just, you have it, you have it. I just, I don't find it fun. Now, I do some storytelling stuff, but that's more fun. But I don't, I don't, I don't, I, just, I didn't lost, it lost it being fun because it was a matter of like, you really couldn't experiment with anything because back then if you experimented and you didn't get left, you lost that game. Right, and right. And there's four weekends of a year. That's, a, you know, like shit, that's yeah. a month away. Well, I know. I mean, you, you, I mean, you asked me what happened, why I moved here. Well, I mean, I, I, I already done 12 years on the circuit. I said, you know what? I've had some close calls at fame. If I stayed on the circuit, I would wind up being a road comic. I would be living out of a suitcase, maybe making half as much and working twice as hard. You know, most of the clubs folded, the good ones. Right. I go, do I want to spend my 40s and 50s and 60s being Uncle Dirty? Right. Yeah. You know, do I want to uh, making fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year living out of airports? Or do I want to do the craziest thing in the world? which is come out as a non-famous comedian and try to make it as a character actor. And I was 36 at the time. And I said, I'm not a leading man, but I'm not a character guy yet. I'm kind of in limbo, but I'm not going back to law. And if I stayed on the road as a comedian, I'm not going to be happy. I'm going to come out here. You just come embittered, I think, because it's like, and, and there is a generational gap. I mean, it's just so funny. I didn't want to become bitter. I mean, you saw right. a lot of comedians. Once they became bitter on oh, stage, yeah, they would just. That was there. it. Oh yeah, and it was just, and they weren't fun. They weren't fun no, to watch. No, no, Because no. it was, and even if the crowd was laughing, you know, you go, man, no, I feel bad for that person because I, they just they weren't having fun, and that no. was the whole thing of doing comedy. They were not, and I, and I said to myself, so I came out here and I met with agent after agent after agent, and every one of them would pretty much tell me, I'm probably going to kick myself in the butt for not taking you, but you 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 all you have are stand up comedy credits. Uh, you're not famous. You're not a leading man. You're not a character guy. We pass. And, uh, you know, I just said to myself, maybe I should go home. But I started to – got an agent. I started getting auditions. I was bombing left and right. I was overacting so badly. I never forget I auditioned for uh, I auditioned for uh, Judging Amy. And it was a small role as a security guard. And I was so over they the top. They were afraid you're going to whack off. They said, well, oh, he's going to whack off. Oh, there's off a guy who whacks off a security guard. It was a small part as a security guard. And after I did it, the casting director said to me, what is the name of the show? I said, Judging Amy. She goes, any reason why you're reading your role like it's called Judging the Prison God? I, <laughs> I was so over the top. Uh, NYPD Blues. I went in to read for a reoccurring desk sergeant, and I was so nervous. I thought to myself, oh, I made it now. I'm going to be a real I love that show. I'm a desk sergeant. I'm going to call my friends. I had like two words. It was like the Ralph Crandom episode when they handed them the check. I literally had two words, and they went, action. I went, True story. Those two casting directors did not bring me in for 21 years. Now, were you taking acting classes at all? No. I just thought since I was a a good comedian, I could transfer this into doing copy in front of two people. So I'll never forget after these two auditions, I went to the 20th century bench and I started crying. I called up my buddies in New York and I said, how could I have done 12 years of stand-up in front of the toughest audiences in the world? And I can't do one line in an office with one person. Well, what's going on here? How could I not transfer my 12 years of stand-up into one or two lines? So I was bombing left and right. And then I think Paul Lyons uh, changed it all for me. He said to me, Kent, stop trying to out-act these people. These are trained actors. But nobody can out-Kent you. I went, what? He goes, you're a, you're a type. Nobody can out-Kent you. And the moment I started stopping acting was the moment I started to book. And to this day, I, I've been coaching for, for years. I tell my students, don't try to outact anybody. Nobody can out, out Steve you. Well, now you were getting commercial work too, right? Well, yeah. First couple of years, I was getting uh, a lot of commercial extra work, which was great because it paid a lot of money. And the key, in, the key in commercial extra work is to blend in. 
I've never been a blender in anything in my life. I and mean, you're also six five, so yeah. it's hard to blend in when you're. Six I mean, five. I buy bar mitzvah. The the, uh, uh, the when I got there, the rabbi thought I was getting married. He was looking for my wife. I'm 13. Okay, I never forget once in sixth grade, true story. Uh, there was a substitute teacher, and everybody acted really bad that day. And the regular teacher came back the next day and said, "I heard you kids were so bad." And Kent, I'm surprised at you. You're taller than everybody else. You should know better. Fifty years later, I don't know what that means. I'm taller than everybody else, but I should know better. So the key in commercial work is to blend in. Because if you don't blend in, they have to upgrade you. I would do everything possible to be a draft. And they would kick me off the set or they would have to upgrade me. So I got upgraded a ton. And I made a lot of money doing what I wasn't supposed to, which was sticking out. And that kept me from going back on the road. Because there were times when I said to myself, I gotta go back on the road as a comedian. I'm not making any money. But I got upgraded almost 20 times in seven years. Which, to this day, if I ever win any awards, I would thank the people that gave me commercial extra work because that kept me from going back on the road as a comedian. And I also was probably the world's worst commercial extra because I was paid to blend and I would go out of my way to not blend. <laughs> but hey, you know, this is like I, mean, I do background work every once in a while because it's fun. And I always said the same thing. I go, you know, my girlfriend was doing it. And I said, oh, it's all cool. We Sometimes we can get booked together. All right. We both are on the phone. I go, I give my numbers to Central. And then yeah. I go, do you need a woman? to go, yeah. And the thing for me is I'm not union, so it's not great money. But I always sit there and go, you know what? If you're there for four hours, you're getting paid for eight. If you're going to be there for eight hours, kick me there for 10, 12, oh. because then you get time and a half and double time. And I always go, and basically, and like you said about digging ditches, I'm sitting there eating eating at the craft table and then getting fed meals all the time. And it's a lot of, there's people working in warehouses or dealing with oh. people making nothing, dealing with crap or working, picking lettuce. No, no, no. And here we're sitting there, sitting in an air conditioning. I was, did a Ray Donovan in an air conditioning room, just chilling out, writing. I'm like, oh, no, you're paid to get there. And I never forget once, one of my first gigs up there outside, and a guy turns to me and goes, It started to rain. He looked at me and he goes, Rain penalty. I went, What? He goes, Then someone started smoking. Another guy goes, Smoke penalty. Then, like an hour later, another guy says to me, Meal penalty. I thought to myself, This thing is all about penalties. I never forget once I did one weekend gig because I was close to 20 penalties, and there was overtime. I must have made 20 years ago 1,200 bucks and three meals because right. yeah. there were so many penalties. Then yeah. I told you in the text I said I got the one commercial and it said 57, 46 runs, which meant that they were going to cut the commercial 46 ways. So I made 46 times a day's pay. I made my insurance. I went, this is insane. It's crazy. So it kept me alive, and it was easy work. And to this day, I get a pension because of that. Now, how did you get into the Dr. Phil? Because you, you've done a uh, lot of Dr. Phil, and and it's and because you're tall, that's one time that, you, as we talked about, it's hard for you to get some roles because, as we say, most actors are 5'8 or 5'9. Yeah. I mean, that's just Well, it's funny. You know, I, I actually teach a class in, in the business of acting, but I also teach a class in survival. Because in order to keep your dream alive, you have to eat. You got to pay your rent. You got to buy gas. You got to have clothes. And I've always had wonderful survival jobs. The extra thing, great, but it dried up. After that, I was a comedy traffic school instructor for the improv, which was great because I would pick up girls. <laughs> there you go. And I would sell pepper spray in my comedy tapes. So people used to make jokes and say every time a girl got pulled over for a ticket, there was an 80% chance Kent was going to sleep with her at some point. So that lasted a couple of years, and that, that ended. But it was great. I sold pepper spray after class. I sold my comedy tape. I sold everything, and I did my comedy. I had eight hours to work on bits, and they had they couldn't leave. <laughs> it's perfect. And I'd graduate the prettiest girls last and ask all of them out. <laughs> See, we're gonna, it was a great gig. That ended. And then all of a sudden, I get a call from my agent saying, there's this new guy named Dr. Phil Oprah discovered, and they want you to, to stand in for him and uh, for some sort of movie. Uh, uh, they want you to be him. I went, who is he? I looked at him. I went, all right, I'll be him. I kind of heard of me as a mustache. So I get to this gig. And the agent lied. It turns out uh, uh, Pete Rose was there. Uh, that must have been great being oh, a baseball fan. Rose was there. Uh, uh, Martha Stewart was there. Liza Minnelli was there. And Dr. Phil was there, but she lied to us. We were there standing. So I was a little annoyed by that, going, I don't want to stand in. Dr. Phil people saw me. I had a mustache at the time, and he was on the air like a year or two. And afterward, they approached me and said, do you want to stand in for Phil? I went, well, I don't really want to stand in 100 a day. They go, really? I go, no, no, thanks. And they were amazed that someone said no. 
Then they contacted me a couple of months later and asked me to do it again. I said, no, I don't, I don't, 100 a day. I, I want to do other stuff. Then all of a sudden, I, th I got wise being a smart New York, New York Jewish guy that got a minority scholarship. I said, let me investigate this crazy lookalike world filled with nutcases and kooks. So I found this guy who was a cutthroat lookalike agent. And I said, can you try to negotiate a good deal with Dr. Phil people? Because he's 6'5", I'm 6'5", I'm bald. He negotiated a great deal for me. I wound up doubling him for five, six years. Uh, lighting, makeup, hair on his commercials when he was Match.com spokesman, when he did commercials. It was the easiest gig in the world. I used to go in and sit on couches to see if his butt would fit. Makeup test, lighting. It probably wasn't that long of a day. No. Because he, he was, was doing his show and then. No, it was, it was one of the. I, and I used to say to my friends, how did this fall on my lap? I, I, in my survival techniques, I couldn't have imagined doubling one of the hottest guys in the world TV show, but I just collected the money. Then I started doing private corporate gigs as Dr. Phil. I never forget once I got hired by the guy who runs University of Phoenix. He hired 15 lookalikes. We walked around the room. I got hired at private parties as Dr. Phil. I had a voice coach. I can't do his voice because I was terrible at it. But, And I wanted making money going, what a great side gig. It ended after five, six years, the money. But, and by the way, people say, is he, is he, a, is he a SOB? No, he's not warm and fuzzy, but no, he was nice. He was, he, he was cordial to me. And he, he was had, cordial. He knew you were doing the celebrity look like he was fine with that? Yeah, but you know, you know, he, I always thought if I was him, I would be a lot nicer to me and friendlier. But you know, I think he was uncomfortable having a double. I think he, yeah, I think I, that's like anything. That's sort of like you, know, you sit there and it's like and the double. You know, it, it's it's like I it creeped him out. I think. Yeah, and it's also just you know, well, what, what? I hope this guy looks like me because then it's like I did a I did background and it was I was uh, it was a gay wedding. Now it's going to be in a gay couple. It was just a few weeks ago, and so I get they're asking, do you have any problem? I go, I don't give a crap. You know. What? And then I was sitting there, when I got there, and I was thinking the thing, well, wait a second, man. I hope, I hope they put me with a good-looking guy, because if they don't, I'm going to be pissed. They better put me with some fat, schlubby guy. So they put me with this guy. He's 25. He's good-looking. I go, I got no problem. Like, man, I said, this, I'm a sugar daddy. I'll take that. I have no problem with that. Absolutely. That's the thing. But if you sit there, and you're like, when you play a certain role, like with Dr. Phil, he's probably like, you know, what is it? You know, what, what if this guy ends up, you know, taking over my show? Well, you know, he's you a comedian. Know, he really might weird. have done something. Two things are really weird. Well, once we shot at his house. And his dog was all over me. I think I tricked his dog. And there was, there was another moment which was really weird. I don't know if you know about Paramount. They have like a scalpel really high up there. They were shooting once. And it had this like Rupert Pupkin thing in my mind going. Because they would go fill in, Kent out, fill in, Kent out. And I had this crazy illusion going, if I just pushed him off, I, I'd be all over the papers. Dr. Phil lookalike kills Dr. <laughs> Phil. <laughs> Pushes him off scalpel. I know I would be like the most famous person in the world. Dr. Phil lookalike pushes Dr. Phil off. Then again, you know, you know, I, you know the crazy illusions of stuff, you know. But it was a, it was a, it was a really nice, fun gig. Easy. We also did. You also did a character work for Leno and Kimmel. Well, I, I did a lot of sketches in those shows. Now, how did that happen? Did, did Jay know you? No, or? I, I, I knew the guy uh, who did it, and he used to bring me in for, uh, you know. Different things, not, not as much as I, you know, I liked, but you know, I mean, they were nice. They paid a couple hundred bucks, and you got a little exposure. I mean, I, I mean, deep down, I wanted to go on as a stand-up, but I wasn't in the political framework to get on. You know, as you know, when you're in your fifties, you know, when I was in my twenties, I used to watch Uncle Dirty going, eh, "Who's gonna watch a guy in his fifties? Then suddenly, I became a guy in his fifties. You're not hip anymore. You're not cool. You're not that. So, at out of my mind, I, I, I put away stand-up for the last 20 years going, the only time I'm really ever going to do stand-up is if the universe and my hard work gets me on a show. I don't care if it's third or fourth banana, you know, like a Richard Belzer. I mean, he was like third or fourth banana, but he played comedy clubs because he was a name. Right. That's ultimately been my goal for 25 years is to get on a show, second, third, banana, I don't care. And then be able to do comedy clubs with my name attached, because right. as you know right now, you can't make any money if you're no, not a name. You need, yeah, that's a thing, and you can and you can play different venues. You know, that's just the way it goes. Yeah. So now, now, when did you get into the comedy coach? I mean, uh, the acting coaching, and how that all come about? Well, I mean, I mean, over the last twenty-two year, twenty-three years, I've been pounding away as an actor. You know, I've gotten a, uh, as I mentioned to you before, I, I've done a lot of reality shows, which don't pay a lot, but they allow me to swing for the fences. They allow me to use improv. They allow me to be big. They allow me to be Kent. Like, what were some of those shows? Oh, I've done the Body Kings. I've done the Gene Simmons show. I've done Mystery Diners. And what do you do? You uh, just play a, a character? Yeah, yeah. They say it's uh, improv, but they kind of help you along. I did a, I did Prank My Mom, which was a great show because I always loved candid camera as a kid. 
So this was as close to candid camera. I did I did, I did hidden video shows, reality shows, and they uh, uh, investigative discovery shows. I played a cop on Saturday, another one. They allow you to swing for the fences. My challenges that I've had over the years is I'm gonna I booked uh, Mad Men first season, uh, episode three, Marriage of Figaro. It was so early that the show hadn't even gone on yet. I was sharing a dressing room with John Hamm. That's that's how early the show was. Nobody even knew him. Then I did Monk, and I've done Rules of Engagement. I've done a lot of co-star roles, but the challenges I face is at 6'5", 290. A character, uh, uh, co-star roles, you're supposed to be transitional characters that blend. There's nothing blending about me. So when I go out on these roles, I don't book a lot of them because I'm too big. I'm too tall. I fill up the screen. The guest stars in the series regulars don't want to f- be around a guy 6'4", 290. Right. So consequently... It's been frustration because I keep waiting for that main guest lead, that main guest star that's going to allow me to be me. Funny story, uh, I auditioned many years ago for a show called The Agency as a bellhop. And back then I was very naive. I went, I did great. I know I got it. Of course I didn't get it. My buddy took me aside and said, Kent, when's the last time you checked into a major four-star hotel and had a six-foot-five Jewish bald guy take your luggage? Right. So (laughs) consequently... 95% 95% of my auditions over the years have been these kind of roles, okay? But I've booked a fair amount of them, but I haven't booked most of them. But I keep going because I know I know deep down there's a role out there. As a co-star, they ask you to bunt. They ask you to sacrifice, like baseball. They ask you to go for a single. I'm a home run hitter. So I keep going out there going. I mean, I had an audition the other day that my scene would be with Bruce Willis if I book it. I had an audition yesterday. My scene would be with Anthony Hopkins if I book it. But that's, that's the HBO show, right? Yeah, the the, the Westworld. Yeah, because uh, one of the guys who's JJ Abrams. Well, a guy a while ago was with my show. He started talking about it two years ago because he was cast. I yeah, his name. and when I leave here too, you know, I'm a going. But the reality is, you know, I'm not knocking co-star roles. They're great, but most of the time they're not career changers. So my theory is what uh, uh, David Caruso once said. He said, uh, "My theory is I'm not going away." So, I mean, I'm not complaining. I mean, I, I've been coaching the business of the biz. I love coaching kids. I love coaching adults. I coach three firemen. I coach an airline pilot. I coach a couple of doctors. What do you coach them on? The business of the biz. Like, explain they, that. They don't know where to begin. How to get an agent. How to get a manager. Okay, so there are people who are looking to a transition from a, oh, yeah. from a fireman yeah. to... I, I have students that make millions of dollars, but they the highlight of their day is going on an audition. They don't know where to get pictures, how to get pictures, what kind of pictures. They don't know how to put together a demo tape. They don't know what sites to get on. They have no idea how to audition technique. So they, they're like babes. So I love those people because they're not worried about the money, and they just want to go out in commercials. So that's – and it also helps me hear myself. I realized after – originally I was going to do this if I ever became like as good as – or as famous as uh, Jeffrey Tambor or Tabalowski or Jason Alexander. Then I went – that's the ego. That's fame. I don't need fame to do this. I'm doing this 22 years. I had thousands of auditions. I have a service. And I started out putting it on Craigslist. I got a couple of firemen. Then I got an airline pilot. Then all of a sudden, I started getting kids. And I, I, I love it. It's, it it's, uh, I have a couple of sessions this week. You know? It's it's it, it's a, it's an it's another extension of my personality. Now, do they sign up? Uh, like when they how many sessions is would it, how many sessions do they sign up for usually? Well, uh, sometimes it's a one two hour session. I have students sometimes they sign up for four weeks. I have packages. Uh, sometimes uh, I have students that only call me when they have auditions. You know, it's kind of an ongoing thing. Now, how do people find you with this with this business? Uh, word of mouth. I used to I was the. Uh, on-campus coach over at Oakwood. Oakwood is where uh, all the kids come from all over the country for pilot season. There's a documentary about that. Yeah, yeah, great documentary. Um, word of mouth. I advertise. Uh, my, my manager helps get me students. You know, and, and it's feast or famine. Sometimes I have a ton. Sometimes, you know, because in this economy, you know, if it comes down to eating or your coach, they're going to eat, you know. But again, it's a wonderful survival job that is more than surviving. It also flourishes my soul. I mean, I always tell people, there's this wonderful book uh, that uh, Charles uh, Charles Grodin wrote, and it starts off with saying, the only thing more difficult than making a living as an actor is selling poetry door to door. And I read that when I first came out here, and I went, I better go home. Is that the one that's uh, so glad to see you and now leave? Yeah, no, it, it's called 
it'd be so good if you weren't here. Okay, no, because I read one of them. And yeah, it was just a and, great read. And every time I book something, I I, I celebrate because you know, I always tell my students an actor's job is to audition. The job is the vacation and the reward. So every time I book something, I say to myself, Kent, you sold a poem. That's almost impossible to sell a poem. You've I look at my resume. You've sold some poems. Holy crap! So. I mean, I'm very, very proud. People, you know, a lot of times people judge successful actors with, are you Tom Hanks? Are you Bruce Willis? Are you, uh, you know, DiCaprio? And they assume anyone who's not them is a busboy. But there's a whole slew of journeyman actors like myself. I live in a luxury apartment. I drive a nice car. I have nice, I'm wearing a Tommy Bahama shirt. I have food. I have money in the bank. But I'm not famous. But I'm not rich. But I'm a working actor. And that's what I tell my students. Don't worry about fame and fortune. Work. And then see what follows. That's right. We only have a few minutes left. Look at that. See, time flies. Time flies. We have about two or three minutes left. Now, how can, you, you don't have a website, though. Do you tweet? Are you a Twitter guy? Uh, I'm, I'm more of a Facebook guy, and I'm on LA Casting and Actors Access, which kind of serves as a website. And I'm all over the internet, and I'm on YouTube and things like that. So what do you, what, what, what's some of the stuff we can see on YouTube? We, we write it, type oh, it, you can just, do it. Hold on, hold on. It's K-E-N-T. K-A-S-P-E-R. Kent, Kent, two right. K's. But, but I'm also under Henny Clock 64 and Mr. Henny Clock. My well, mother, my, my on mother, YouTube? My mother's name was Henny. You could see uh, various TV shows I did, Monk, Rules of Engagement, uh, some of the reality shows I did. Um, you know, some Dr. Phil stuff. Now, you have an audition today. Yeah, I have an audition today for a, a big series. Uh, yesterday was the Westworld with uh, Tony Hopkins, uh, Tony, um, Anthony, yeah. Anthony Hopkins and uh, Ed Harris. Week before was Scorpion with uh, Willis. So I'm getting, you know, I'm getting good opportunities. And, and that's the great part about this business. There's always another train coming. So I don't believe in the word rejection. I believe in, all right, they went another way. And now there's another train coming down the track. So therefore, I may wind up being five-ish Finkel and, quote, hit fame and fortune at 90. Or I may wind up continuing to work as an actor and coach and, Looking back, I think it still would have been bad. I have friends of mine who are judges and defense attorneys. They hate it. Right. They're bored. They want to kill themselves. And they envy my life. I'm single. I come and go as I please. I work when I want. And, to, you know, I, I think I'm a very lucky man in many, many ways. With very, 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 very few regrets. And uh, no, no stand-up in the future unless you get a series. I did some stand-up when I first came out here. Uh, over at that club out uh, uh, by uh, Santa Clarita, uh, yeah. Marie Callender. Uh, Valencia's, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I dipped my feet and I did some private parties. And I haven't done it since, but I'm, I'm out of shape. I mean, you know, maybe I, I'll be able to do it. But I think in my future at some point, I'm going to get back on the horse. Yeah. You know, But it has to be with some notoriety. It has to be with um, a name attached because you can't go backwards. Someone says to me, start doing the open mics. Uh, you know, having done this professionally for f almost 15 years, I can't go to a coffee house yeah, they don't, and be they introduced don't. as an open mic with I one know. minute. It's crazy. So. You know. Anyway, I want to thank you for coming on. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Did I monopolize too much? I didn't, I didn't let you talk too much. I'm sorry. That's my job. Oh, okay. My guests talk. I'm only as hip as my guests. I, that's This is what I do. I let you guys talk. That's why I have people. That's why I have so many character actors on. And different, different, I want people who have stories. As Letterman, Letterman said one time to his guest, Richard Harris told stories. He goes, all you need is three stories. No, I did. That's that's what. You know, yeah, but you didn't tell me you'd be in your pajamas though. Well, that's that's kind right. of that's, throwing that's, me off yeah, a little threw bit. Threw me off. I was out. But anyway, so it's Kent Casper on Facebook, right? Kent so Casper on Facebook. Uh, Henny Clock oh, or Mr. Henny Clock 64, 64. You'll see me all over. Well, check him out, people. Also, uh, follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Or go to my website www. Like I even have to say that coopertalk.net I have God. I think I have almost three hundred and ninety episodes up there now. You can email me, Cooper at coopertalk.net. I will always get back to you because that's what I do. If you want to check me out on iTunes or Stitcher, you can check them out there. Just type in one word, Cooper Talk. Also, my other website, stopthesalt.com. That's stopthesalt.com. Remember, it was about a little over three years ago. I got out of the hospital with my heart condition, wrote a cookbook, low-sodium cooking for one. It's got 120 easy recipes. No pictures to intimidate you. Nothing, no ingredients. Like if you don't have cumin, don't worry. There's no recipes with cumin. It's basic, easy ingredients, low-sodium, good for you because you got to eat healthy because we're not getting younger. So go to StopTheSalt.com. You can get it on Amazon if you want, but I make more money if you get it from StopTheSalt.com and I'll even autograph it for you. So that's a good deal. That's what they got to do because, you know, you got all about making the money. So that's about it. I want to also thank uh, Brody James over at All Radio X, the guys Arbin at 3 Rant Radio. No, that's 
radio rant. I don't even, I can't even think of it today, people. Anyway, that's about it. Um, Steve Cooper, Monday Sip is my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, keep listening. I got some great guests coming up through the summer. You guys have a happy and safe 4th of July, and don't drink and drive because the cops are going to be everywhere. Have a good one.